Okay, everybody. Does everyone have a drink or food or something? Because we're about to get started. So if you still need something, you might as well go grab it now. Um, before we get going, I just wanted to let you guys know that tomorrow morning from 8.30 to 9.30, we will have adoration at the chapel for anyone who is available to come. Phil, our speaker tonight, will lead us in a little meditation, um, and it should be great. I mean, what better way to start your day than adoration? So thank you guys for coming tonight. There are a couple things I want you, or I want to share with you all about Phil before we get started. So I met him last summer. A group of ESU students went on a focus missionary trip um, to Denver. And we were with the Christ in the City organization, and they work with the homeless on the streets of Denver. So throughout the week, at the beginning, before I even knew Phil's name, this guy, every time he walked by me, he would shove me or slap my shoulder or just razz on me somehow. So right from the beginning, it was like a very brotherly relationship with Phil. It's exactly how me and my brother David cohabitate. If you know us, we can't walk through the room without punching each other or whatever. Whoa. So <laughs> so I knew that I would get along with Phil. And then I uh, had the opportunity to just get to know him a little bit better. And this is the main takeaway that you should probably know about him. Um, but I could very clearly see in every interaction that he had with any human being that he was talking with, whether it was another missionary or one of us students or one of the um, friends on the streets of the homeless. I could tell that Phil had a gift of being able to see Christ in others very, very easily. And that is definitely something that I have prayed for. That's a beautiful gift that I aspire to be able to have myself. And so that is a huge reason why I wanted him to be able to come to Emporia to speak with all of us tonight. Um, he gave a talk for all of us that was honestly probably the highlight of my whole week and just brought me almost to tears. It was so beautiful. So I wanted you guys to be able to get a taste of that tonight and participate in the beautiful uh, sun that we have with us tonight. So without further ado, let's hear it for Phil Couture. Can you hear me? Is that good? OK. I, I don't feel like I should talk after that. You're going to be disappointed. Um, <laughs> thanks for having me, actually. I. To tell you the truth, so there's a lot of schools that come through Christ in the City. Uh, there's, my focus has lots of mission trips that they do with us. Um, we have uh, different schools who uh, come individually, like uh, from all over the country. And uh, every school has its feel. You know, some schools are like, really energetic. Some, some are really cool. Some are really chill. Some are really weird. Like, uh, we don't allow them to come back kind of weird. But... <laughs> But it, it was really something. Like with the representation that you guys had from Emporia, I was beyond impressed. Like there's some people who have like a natural ability for the streets. What I mean by that is so Christ in the City, if you don't know, 
it trains missionaries uh, to go on the streets and encounter the poor, to encounter the homeless. And there's some people who are going to be more naturally capable at that, right? And everybody who came from Emporia, I was like, man, they got, they got something. I don't know what they're eating in Kansas, but I'll have what they're having. So maybe it's the beer. So, okay, so I have a confession. I got the uh, pumpkin spice stout, which was a huge feat for me because there's this place in uh, Phoenix where I grew up. It's called Oso, and they had this beer called the Basic Bro Beer Stout. And it was a pumpkin spice flavor, you know, kind of like playing off of that. So that was, I don't know, maybe if you guys are having that, that'll work. Anyway. I was asked here, Caitlin asked me to come here to talk about what, what our vision is with Christ in the City, like what we do. And, you know, I've been, I've been with Christ in the City for four years. My background is I was living in the Andes before. I was living in a community, um, a town called Ayavidi, which is about 12,000 feet up in the Andes. If you haven't heard of it, it's because no one has, basically. Um, and there you have abject poverty. Like people who panhandle here can make more in, in a year than people there can make in five. Like, it's, it's disproportionately poor. And a bit of where I came from is I wanted to be with those who most suffer. I wanted to be close to people who had suffered in extreme ways so I could be there, so I can offer my heart for them. And so I was there. I was sent there. I was told I'd be there for at least, like, five years. I was ecstatic. I said, I'll stay here until I die if you want. And when I was sent to, to Christ in the City to help with the formation and with our homeless outreach, I can't tell you how disappointed I was at first. I was like, man, this is such a step down from what I want to do. Like, I want to live this in, intense, radical life of giving myself away for others in this place that nobody knows about and nobody will hear about and nobody will hear about me in. But I can't tell you how surprised I was to come to the U.S., to come to where I, where I live and and where I thought I would never return to, and find that the poverty that I've, that's here, even if it has a different face and different expressions, is really the same root. In my time at Christ in the City, so in four years now, just, just past four years since November, you get a lot of questions, right? Like when you work with the poor, people can have a lot of questions what to do. Maybe when you guys who came back from, from mission trips, you had all kinds of people, so what was it like? What did you do? And so on. For me, I get tons, you know, and you get people who ask everything from how many homeless are in Denver to uh, what do the homeless like to eat in general, what do they do throughout the day, all kinds of questions. And we have direct access to them. We go on the streets, we find them, we know where we sleep, so we have a lot of those answers. And what I found is that in general, when people ask certain questions, especially about the homeless, they really want something else besides like the face value answer. And I found that there's a, like about a handful of questions, really about three that almost everybody asks me or they kind of get to the bottom of. And at least for me, it seems like there's something else behind it, something more basic that they're trying to answer. They're trying to know, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, there's homelessness everywhere. The poor are everywhere. What am I supposed to do to respond to this? What am I supposed to do about this? What, what should I make of this? For me, in, in distilling these three questions, I find, I don't know, I think we kind of get to the bottom of a lot of it if we examine it. So, okay, humor me in this, all right? How many of you have thought to yourselves, asked yourselves, or asked someone else, should I give money to the homeless? Yeah, it makes sense, right? Like, you see them, and it makes sense. It's a simple evaluation. Like, okay, the homeless don't have stuff. I have some stuff. If I give them some stuff, that might help them, and they might have better, happier lives, right? It's an intuitive thing. Some of you might have this other thought. Maybe not, but I've met some people who have. Essentially, it's, what's the solution? 
what do I have to do about this? What, what do the homeless need so that they're no longer homeless, right? Like, if I give this to them, will they no longer be homeless? Will they have what they need? Simple enough. I could give you the answer, but you're going to be disappointed. My answer is maybe. Maybe you should. I, I think there's another uh, motive behind that question, which is, what's, what's the easy thing that I have to do? Like, give me the blanket answer. What do I have to do to respond to this situation? Should I give everybody money? Because if I, if I do, I will. And if I, if I don't, then I won't, plain and simple. I've actually asked the homeless some of these questions because I heard them so much, I, like some friends that I, I came to know. I was, I was telling Caitlin and Sam about some that I've known for years now. I'm like, what, what would you say? What would you say to that? And they're like, like, get to know them first. Like, figure it out. Like, like that guy down the streets, like, I know what he's doing with the money. It's nothing good. It's not going to help him. It's not going to help him get out. But he put, you know, has a sign. He plays it up like he really needs it. But he doesn't really. But I know this guy does. I know what he needs. I know what he's going through. And I know what he's trying to do with it. And it makes sense, right? Like, it makes a lot of sense to say, yeah, maybe I should, like, get to know this person and what they need before I decide whether I should or not. That's where I think we kind of reveal, yeah, what, that just makes sense. And there you, it reveals a lot. One, we kind of want a blanket answer for a lot of stuff. Two, maybe there's something that scares us about getting involved in the answer. Why is it that we would maybe do that? Maybe if like one friend asks us for money, we'd be like, yeah, sure, bro. Like, here you go. Oh, you don't, you don't need to pay me back. It's cool. You know, we do that for one friend, but maybe another like, no, <laughs> just, just no. Like, you're good. You got this. We would do that for other people. Why is that a concerning question for the homeless? Could it be that we have something that we're afraid of? But here's, like, what does this mean to, like, get to know them? Well, I think it means, like, to start getting into a relationship. It gets to know their past. It gets to know what the, what the things are that they're struggling with. But it means also being aware of what's around here. I, I looked up on the way here what you, uh, the, the things you have in Emporia. Like, I, I'm not quite sure what your, uh, your homeless population is, but you guys have a good amount of resources here, actually. Like, no, not bad in any case, better than some places. You have places that you could recommend for people to go. For our missionaries, we try and educate them on the resources. We try and give them stuff that they can use to pass out. Even we have some like pamphlets of just about everything they could possibly need for showers, for uh, case management, for IDs, like everything like that. What would happen if you had those handy and you got to know their cases and what they need and you could hand those out? You could tell them about that. But also it's about knowing what they really need. Here's, here's a, you would not believe the most common thing I've heard word for word in Denver. The most common thing that the homeless in Denver say, the homeless in Denver, word for word, is nobody starves in Denver. Over and over again. Maybe even some of the mission troops have heard it. Nobody starves in Denver. It's because it is overwhelming the amount of resources that Denver has. You have so much for food, for shelter, and so on. Uh, I would say there's some lacking for shelter, like we could do better there, and that might actually resolve a lot of the issue. But the homeless don't need that much food. There's no need to start another food line. There's tons, tons, multiple times a day. So get to know the resources. Get to know, what, get to know what's around. But get to know them. And get to know what they need. So here's another question I often hear. Aren't the homeless just mentally ill? Like, or aren't they like addicted to some substance? Like, why else would they be out there? All right, for this, how many of you have thought this, asked yourselves this, heard someone else ask this, whatever, like in some form? Okay, so still like we're getting like at half in some way, shape, or form. 
Again, I think there's another motive behind this, which is, can we even, like, is it really their fault? Like, if they're mentally ill, maybe we should just take them and put them in a, a mental asylum, right? Maybe we should just take care of it that way. Or if they're addicted, maybe we should just put them in a program or whatever. But there's the, the hidden thing here is I think that we're kind of wondering if it's really just out of our in control entirely. If we should just accept that there's just something here that's broken and we can't quite fix, or we can like maybe fix with some you know, care or whatever, but it needs to be like we need to put them over here in this corner and take care of it that way. Well, I think you know what the common sense answer is. The answer is some. Some have that. But it's not quite as big as a problem as we would like to think. If I, okay, let's, let's have some fun. If, you, if I were to ask you how many you, uh, of the homeless are mentally ill, what would you guess? Like say in Denver, Emporia, Kansas City, whatever. Right? Throw, out, throw out a percentage. What would you guess? Half. Okay, what else? 33. 10. 10. You're much closer. 16% in Denver. 16% of the homeless in Denver are homeless. It's higher for addiction, it's 26%. And obviously, like, this is something that we can, like, you know, that leads to, uh, like, addiction is a mysterious thing in general, but it leads to a thing that we just can't stop. And it oftentimes leads to these, these, this brokenness in our lives that sends us down these kinds of paths. But with the mentally, with the mentally ill, and even if we consider this, uh, the amount of uh, the addicted, it doesn't compare to, say, not being able to pay rent or mortgage, which is about 30%. Like, those things, and not to mention, like, uh, uh, breakups or uh, a spouse that was lost or being laid off, like, and how much this can hurt. Now, there's one more question that I often hear. In the end, aren't the homeless just lazy? Like, they could do something about it, right? Like, especially if we already answered this question, mental illness. Okay, so there's a lot of people who are able to get off the streets. There's a lot of people who are stuck there that, you know, are they really stuck, actually? Like, do they really, are they really stuck in this position, or could they do something and they're just lazy? How many of us have asked that question or know someone who's asked that question? Okay. This one is a lot more intuitive. It's the same thing, actually, though. It's, some are. I, this question I actually asked to another one of my homeless friends. like, would you say the homeless are lazy? He's like, sometimes. Sure. But if I could put into words what he was trying to say is, sometimes despair looks a lot like laziness, but they're not the same thing. Okay, humor me in this. All right, this one requires you to settle in. So... I'm going to put you through a thought experiment, the same one we put our missionaries through with training. So like, I don't know, get cozy, like settle into your seat, whatever you have to do. If you want, close your eyes, but let's really try and imagine what it takes to become homeless. Few of us ask that. Sometimes we imagine, we think, imagine being homeless and we like transplant ourselves onto the streets and like, oh, that's really hard. Sure, that's hard. But let's think about what it takes to get there. Imagine that you fell into economic hardship that was so dire, that was so intense, that it was either you were gonna, you were, you were certainly gonna lose wherever you're living, you would stop going to school here at Emporia, you couldn't afford it, you couldn't afford staying here, or, and like, you just were gonna run out of housing. It's either the streets or what? Usually you would think, I have to call somebody, right? Like if it's the streets or something else, you're gonna pick something else, whatever that something else is. That is the most human answer possible. And I bet if we had a sheet of paper, if we gave everyone a sheet of paper and a pen, and I said, name anybody, anybody you would be willing to call. Because again, like this is dire. This is like the streets or something else. So you're going to pick anybody you could possibly think of normally, right? 
unless like there's something where you felt really embarrassed or you felt like you couldn't do it. And that's already something interesting yourself. Like you didn't want to bother someone. But if I were to ask you, name your think of your parents, your siblings, your, uh, I don't know, your Boy Scout leader, your, uh, your professors, your past coaches, whatever, you can maybe make a list of like 50 to 100 people. Maybe. But one way or another, I have a feeling that everybody in this room would not be short on people they could call. Is that fair to say, like, in general? Okay. Imagine that that list disappeared. Imagine that you, for whatever reason, real or perceived, could not call anyone. Could you imagine that? Like, I actually can't, in all honesty, but like, just trying to come into contact with that, that's, that's foreign to me. I've never known a situation like that where I've had nobody in my life that cares about me enough where they would take me in in a dire circumstance. And this, I'm not kidding, like this is the real deal. Like when we first started Christ in the City, there was a, a man, it almost like confirmed what we were all about. There was a man that we met on the streets. Uh, no, let's take a step back. We were starting to walk on the streets, one of the very first street walks we ever did. That's what we talk about when we say like going on the streets and meeting the homeless. Another homeless guy came in like, you need to help that guy. He's been there for three days and he hasn't moved. We went up to him. His name is Steven. But he hadn't heard his name in three months. Can you imagine that? Like, again, I can't. I can't imagine what it's like to not hear my name for three months. Can you imagine what would change in your psyche and what you would view yourself as? Can you imagine being so disregarded by everybody that nobody even cared, not, not just like no one knew, but nobody cared to know your name. That's insane. And that is not a neutral thing. That, there's no way that can have a neutral effect on a person. That's how people arrive to the streets. Real or perceived, their relationships are busted. They're broken. They don't perceive that they have anything else to fall back on, they, or anyone else for that matter, no, nothing to cushion them. Maybe they deserve it. Maybe they broke them. Or maybe someone else broke the relationship for them. But that's besides the point. Brokenness is at the heart of homelessness. The real heart of homelessness is not just a lack of stuff. It's a lack of relationship, of everything. That's the heart of chronic homelessness. But let's keep playing this out. Say you end up on the streets. You, know, you have no one else to call. Maybe you have the stamina to keep going for it. You want to, all right, I want to get off the streets. I want to do it. And a lot of people find their way. The majority of the homeless actually kind of go unseen. They find, they find their way out. But there's a demographic called the chronically homeless. Maybe some of the social worker people might, might be aware of this category. I'm looking at you, Anna. Uh, this is, these are people who like, give a simple definition. I've been homeless for more than a year and typically have a disabling condition. Why does it make a difference to be homeless for more than a year? Well, let's play it out this way. You're on the streets. What's, let's put the question to you guys. You're on the streets. What's the first thing you want to try and do to get off the streets? What, what's the first step you would take? Anyone? Find a job. Find a job. Interesting. You all said that. Okay. So imagine trying to find a job. What do you need for a job? You need a resume. Okay. Maybe you could perform that. Maybe you can't. What else do you need? Like, what do you need to maintain a job? References. Okay. Maybe you have that. Maybe you don't again. But what do you need to maintain a job? What does everybody need? Clothes. What else? Transportation. Transportation. What else? Social Security. What's that? Proof of residency. Proof of residency. Kind of hard, right? Or like even like maintaining a lot of these things just on the streets. Think about transportation. Think of when 
You want to keep your clothes clean, or you want to keep yourself clean. You need a shower. But what if the showers are two miles that way, and the laundry is one mile this way? And what if your job is three miles that way? And how early would you have to wake up for that job to get all that stuff done? So maybe you think, well, what if I find a home base? What if I find a place to stay, a place where like, I can get everything done? I have my, I have my uh, laundry machines here. I, have, uh, I can get my food here. I can shower. You know, I got everything. Well, you're probably going to need emergency shelter, right? You're going to need a place where, OK, I can sleep here and I can get all this done. But let's play this out. There's a lot, of peop a lot of these places, especially in Denver, I don't know how it is in Emporia, where you can have hundreds, like hundreds of bunks for people. The showers, totally bare, in case people are like shooting up and stuff like that. Like you, you do everything in public, including go to the bathroom. Like everything's visible in some of these cases. And imagine trying to sleep overnight with people who are alcoholics or other forms of addiction, who you know are murderous, rapists, pimps, crazy, like people who have mental illness in some way, shape, or form. You know there's bed bugs. You know there's thieves. Would you be really comfortable sleeping that night? Do you think you'd get a good night's sleep for work? And imagine like with these thieves and these people, like, you know, not to mention that some of them may not even go to sleep, but that you kind of feel like you have to sleep with one eye open in case someone takes your stuff, which is all that you have at this point. Can you imagine like just with this stuff, how you would begin to feel? How, what you would, like, just even beginning, before you get to homelessness, how this stuff begins to compound and say, I have no place in this world. Do you really feel inspired to go for it? Maybe, maybe you don't want that. Maybe it's like, okay, I'm not going to deal with an emergency shelter. I'm going to try and get my own place. Subsidized housing, you know, whatever. Uh, it won't be the best place in the world, not like how I lived before, but at least it's a place. At least it's a home base. I don't know how it is here in Kansas, but in Denver, if you sign up for that list, they'll tell you, you can expect something in two years. Two years. Which means your best case scenario is literally to survive in these conditions on the streets like that. Not to mention that Denver is a place where winters aren't exactly the kindest place to be. I know people who have lost their toes, who have lost their appendages in some way, shape, or form because of the winters there. Let's say you still have the stamina. You still have the guts to keep going. You still find, I will find a way to survive on the streets for two years. What things would you begin to sacrifice? Who are the people you'd hang out with that you would never think of hanging out before? What are the things that before were unthinkable that somehow become thinkable? What are the things you would do that were no way ever would you ever do before? Can you imagine a year, just one year, of that? That is how people arrive to the streets. It is brokenness. It is rupture. And I think it's important that we go through that thought experiment. It's what we do with all of our missionaries. Because our diagnosis is going to determine our answer. If we diagnose homelessness as simply a lack of property, a lack of finances, then it's really simple, right? Like it's like painfully simple. Well, shoot, let's just shower them with stuff. Let's, let's give them a house. Let's give them a job. Let's, uh, I don't know, like let's give them a million dollars. Let's, let's like all go in for the lottery. Let's make a collection because that'll solve it, right? But we all know, as I say, that, that that's not going to happen. There's something you sense there. And I saw this in the Andes, and I saw it there, and this is where I began to see that poverty has the same heart. It's I could give these people all those things. Like I, 
I could probably find generous people where if they really believed in this, we could get these things for them. But we know it wouldn't solve it. In some cases, it would even expedite their self-destruction. Because when you begin to be on the streets for that long, you're trying to find ways to cope a lot of times that aren't going to necessarily keep you alive. And maybe you're even kind of wishing death. So that's not the answer. It's not just more stuff. They need something else. Well, maybe they need to be educated, right? Maybe they need to like, know what's out there. You need to find a job, uh, find uh, uh, the dignity of working and stuff like that. So let's educate them about how to get a job and what they need and the resources that are out there. And that'll take care of it. Again, if, uh, maybe you have this intuition or not, but if it doesn't take long on the streets to see that that's not enough. Some of the homeless, actually pretty much all of the chronically homeless, because they've been on the streets for a year and have had to survive this way, they know the resources better than we do. And it's not for lack of trying. They're very aware, painfully aware. They just don't care. Some of them have had great jobs. Some of them were professors. Some of them are, are very intelligent people. And they still don't do it. Okay, well, if it's, not for lack of, if it's not for ignorance or whatever, maybe they just need God, right? Maybe we need, uh, you know, kind of like, all right, accept Christ. He loves you. He wants to take care of you. Um, if you do this, your life will be better. Look, I, I, I could get on board with like a part of that. But isn't there something wrong with that? Isn't there something we sense that's distorted about that as if like a, a prosperity gospel kind of thing? Like, hey, sign up for this and your life will get better. Do we really... Like, if we're talking about material stuff, are we really buying, do we buy into that? I don't. I hope none of us do. Because that's not, that, like, that's nothing that any Christian who has any idea of the faith was ever promised. But we do sense that all of that has some place to play in this. We all sense that each of those aspects has a part in this. And that's why, like, at Christ in the City, we have this vision of four relationships that make up the entirety of a person. Like, think of this. Think of, can you think of anything in your life that doesn't fit into these four relationships? Your relationship with yourself, plain enough. Your relationship with others. Your relationship with creative reality, with material reality. So, like, you know, we could talk about handling money, like, you know, how well you manage that relationship, if you control it or if it controls you. Substances, uh, bills, your house, you know, anything material. And your relationship with God. That fourth one, though, I'm putting it last. Look, I'm, from my experience, this is the most important one. I can't tell you. Like, we, we used to have kind of a different way of like, prioritizing what we do, like a certain order. But I would be on the streets, and I, spent a, I used to coordinate the homeless outreach. And I would meet these people and like, think, this is impossible. This is humanly impossible. How is this person who's crazy addicted to heroin going to be able to keep, like, fulfill the rules of their housing, like, uh, you know, be on good behavior, not do, not do drugs or invite people over or, or cause a scene or make a mess and so on, or, like, if it's even possible, for them to keep a job with all this brokenness that they have. How is that possible? This is a humanly impossible situation. There is no other way of this person finding the fulfillment that they're looking for. And I'm not talking about material fulfillment, like, purely or even essentially, they are not going to find the reconciliation they need with any of these relationships unless something supernatural takes place. And that's why we call it Christ in the city, the, the belief that there is an encounter that takes place here where as this begins to heal, you can he all these things begin to heal. If I begin to view myself correctly, if I begin to view others correctly and have a good relationship with them, if I begin to view material reality correctly, 
And if I have all this under the banner of a love that's greater than me, a power that's greater than me, then all this can change. Maybe you don't believe me in this, but then humor me in one more thought experiment. This one won't be much faster, I promise. So imagine you have been homeless for over a year. You're on a typical street. I don't know what would be around here. I think of 16th Street Mall, for those of you who have been in Denver, like hustle and bustle place. You can imagine like you're so used to people passing you by, acting like they don't see you when they do. You know, maybe not being one of those people you haven't heard your name in months. You're used to being neglected. You don't expect anyone to look at you. And right now, you don't even really care. You're just jaded. But then you have, <laughs> you have some people, some young people who come to you, gray sweaters in our case, charcoal, and they say, hey, what's up? What's your name? What's the first thing you think? Someone, what, what's the first thing you think in this scenario? Who the heck are you? Like, and what else? Why are you talking to me? What do you want? No one talks to me. Unless they're like, going to preach to me about something, about like, you know, something I'm doing wrong. Or they're just trying to get something from me. Some utilitarian relationship where they're just hoping to get that. And so, but maybe you humor it. Maybe you let them, you know, you're like, yeah, I'm so-and-so. Uh, how's your day? You humor that question. And you humor the next question. And you're wondering when they're going to get to the point of it. But they talk to you for... 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. And then they say, well, see you tomorrow. What? <laughs> like, that's insane. Like, who does that? We might think that that's normal for us. But when you're out in this situation, going through the thought experiment that you have, that's not normal. What do you think when they say, see you tomorrow? What's your, what's your first thought if you've gone down this rabbit hole? What's that? They're lying. You're, they're lying. Or maybe if you're really generous, sure, OK, maybe. But you can't help but wonder. You can't help but wonder if they're going to come back. And say they do come back. They come back that day, and it goes the exact same way. And it happens the next day, and the next day, and after the weekend, and the next day. And then they invite you out for coffee, and they show up on time, and they just talk with you. And they see you the next day. Do you really think that can have like a neutral effect? Do you think that's gonna just like go, you know, unperceived? You don't think that's gonna be kind of weird for people who have haven't had this experience of true intimacy and closeness and relationship? That's the proposal that we have. It's a rebuilding of relationships starting with us. And that's my proposal to you guys. You might be wondering, what can I do for the poor? Like, I have no doubt, like, just talking to you guys, like, I've been super interested in hearing what you're studying, why you want to do it. And I've been asking, what's at the bottom of it? What, what got you into this? And there's something that you have all been touched by, at least so far that I've heard, something that provoked you to do something generous, something that's leading you to invest this portion of your life that doesn't really make sense if you're just living for yourself. Each of you so far has been wanting to give yourself away. You're looking to make this world more loving. For the homeless, really, I guess we could say for everybody, that means with relationship and the power of a relationship, the power of a love that in itself is powerful, like an effective love that in itself will transform. And for us as Catholics, we could think of, uh, of John's letter, his first letter. How can we love a God who we don't see if we can't love our brothers and sisters who we do see. And him qualifying it, wherever there is love, there is God. If you want to help the homeless wherever you are, if you want to help anyone in need, 
begin with relationship, because that's at the root of it all. And from that, you could build from the inside out. Thanks to Phil Kocher for making the trip all the way from Denver to Emporia, Kansas, for the wisdom and insight about his experiences as a missionary in the streets of Denver. I'm really grateful to him and to you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. God bless you.